Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Luke, if I haven't met you yet. Um, Turn in your Bible or your app to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're finding ourselves today as we keep continuing through this series we're doing on the book of Acts. Um, And if you're fast and you want to, you could turn to John 17 as well. It's a beautiful passage in there we're going to look at. These are great words for us. And in case you have not noticed, we are in a busy news cycle the last week or so. Our nation is changing pretty rapidly in the last week. Um, You have the Confederate flag. You have people escaping from prison and getting caught. You have what the Supreme Court is kind of dripping out day after day after day. There's a lot going on. One thing that is not ever really out of a news cycle, it feels like every time I turn around, is the debate around the N-word. We're going to talk about that just for a minute, okay? So don't get nervous, all right? Um, But I don't think any time in my history have I ever seen as much racial tension as I see right now. Lots of racial tension. And I think besides the Confederate flag, I feel like the N-word has kind of become the face of it. At least in my generation, because in my short generation, the word has totally changed its value and meaning from the time I was in elementary school all the way up until today. Um, For a lot of people, uh, it still holds and maintains the old value given to it. A lot of people today feel like it has a brand new value given to it. So it's somewhere in between for our culture. And because uh, some people vary, I guess it kind of depends on context for some people. Some some people believe that you should never use the N-word no matter what. You should never say it. You should never, never breathe it. Never say anything that even rhymes with it. But some people say it just depends. No, no, no. It depends. It depends on who you're with, where you're at. It depends on the context. And because of this rapid back and forth over this word, it's become culturally confusing to people. People just don't know. It's in between meanings. It's in between definitions. There is a uh, quote that's been coming out around a pretty controversial character right now dealing with this word. His name is Chester Hanks, a.k.a. Tom Hanks' son, a.k.a. Chet Hayes the rapper. Because when you're really good at rap, you could change your own name, right? I know all of y'all have his album right now. Chet Hayes says this, because he's been using the N-word indiscriminately with no hesitation or regret. But here's the punchline in case you haven't seen Forrest Gump. The Hanks family is white. He's a white guy using it anytime he feels like it without any apology. And this is what he says. He says, hip-hop is not about race. It's about the culture you identify with. The N-word is an unspoken thing between people who are friends who understand each other. So he is basically saying, I define the context. I am the one that defines what the value of that word is. And that is what we've seen given to this word and many others. They're not the old value, not the new value somewhere in between, and very confusing. And it's easy to find other words that are like this too, not just the N-word. There are words I won't use from this pulpit. Just because I feel like some of the old value and old definition is still too strong. There's some pastors that will use it, and they really don't see a problem with it, and they they might actually feel like I'm being too legalistic on that. But because some words are in between meanings, it confuses people. And eventually it takes on various meanings. And it kind of loses all value. So what I'd like to do is talk about another word that kind of takes on different meanings today, depending on the context you're in, depending really on who you're talking to, where you're talking to them at. Not near as provocative as the N-word. It's a very common word we use here all the time. It's mission. And you could throw in its edgier brother, missional, 
But those words, depending on who you're talking to, will garner a different reaction. People will have a different definition for it. I was meeting with a friend last week for breakfast, and he said, Luke, you have to understand that whenever you're up on stage and you talk about mission and you use the word mission, people are coming in with a very definition given to them from someone else, maybe a youth pastor back 20 years ago or their last pastor. But you're saying a word, and they're hearing a word. There's different values. Context is different. Everything is different. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about this word specifically because I think as a church we get confused or discouraged whenever the topic of mission comes up which we're seeing a lot of in the book of Acts I think we get confused because the word is ripped off and rebranded it just doesn't mean what it used to mean a lot of times for people it's kind of like country music you say I listen to country music today it does not mean what it meant 30 or 40 years ago does it does it it's a totally different thing marriage as of just the last few days, it does not mean the same thing that it used to mean. It, it has changed. The word marriage has changed. It will change again and again. It will, it will change more, okay? The N-word, another word just like this. So it's confusing for people. I think a lot of people get discouraged because even though they're having a hard time defining it, they feel like they fail at it, whatever it is. I never bump into people that feel like they're really crushing it in the realm of mission. I meet people that say, I feel like I have a good gospel comprehension. I understand the gospel. I'm able to appropriate it to my life, proclaim it to others. I meet people that say, I feel like I'm doing a really good job with it. I know what it means to live life on life with others. I know what it means to be in deep community and be vulnerable. I know what it means to do that. But I never really meet anyone that says, I got mission. I got this. I see a lot of discouragement, though. So in this 13th chapter of Acts, where we find ourselves today, I think it's really going to help us. And listen, if you're new here or you've come once or twice, I have to say this is not a, this is not a typical sermon. Typically on Sunday mornings, I like to reserve this time for preaching, which is different than teaching. Preaching more aims for the heart. Teaching more aims for the head a little bit. Now, that's, that those, that's, that's a pretty exclusive definition, but that's mostly right, right? Today is a little bit more teaching than preaching, okay? And that's because that's the way the text leads us today. We try as much as we can to have our hands off and let it say what it says, and it really lends itself more to teaching us what mission looks like today than it does preaching to us. So it's not a common message. And we need the teaching because when it comes to being a missionary, we don't do so great at it. When it comes to being on mission, we struggle with it, yet it's one of the more beautiful attributes of God's gospel to us, his mission to all of creation to renew and to beautify everything sin has destroyed. We get to be caught up in this because just as God was sent to mankind, we are sent to mankind. We see this in John 17. If you could turn there. It shows us that God is the first missionary. He is the proto-missionary. And we in like kind or sent like he is sent. Now this is Jesus talking in John towards the end of his life. He'll be dead soon, right? And then raised again. This is in the passage that shows him praying to his father. And it's actually towards the end part of his prayer. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into this world. And God did come into the world. God entered mankind as Jesus. 
Think about the missionary or the missional move this was. He left a place of great comfort, security, glory, and he came to a place that just was not going to accept him or welcome him. He inserted himself into a very dangerous context, one that would would mistake him, misunderstand him, and hate him. That's missional. We have Jesus Christ being the epitome and the apex of all that God treasured. All of God's love and high treasure was in the person of Jesus. And he came to us. Now listen, we couldn't even behold how beautiful he was. We don't even have the ability to comprehend how how beautiful and intoxicating the person of Jesus is. But he comes in a way that we can understand. He comes picking up mankind's language. Speaks like we speak. Looking like, like we look. Coming through a common family. Living in a neighborhood. Taking on the customs and the traditions of mankind so that we would understand him, so that we would comprehend him, laughing with us, crying with us, challenging us, partying with us, rebuking us, blessing us, all of these things while he leads us towards grace. It's highly missional. And just as he is sent to mankind, Remember this, so we too are sent into mankind. Now that's the punchline for today, but in this chapter what we see is Paul's very first short-term missions trip. <laughs> right now, him and the gang, they're leaving base camp, they're leaving Antioch, and they're going to go out into the world and start planting churches. This is when we start seeing intentional church movement away from the base camp. So what I'd like to do in this chapter is just really practically dig out some helpful things for us as we are on missions so that we are not confused and that we are not discouraged. But also what I'd like to do is take this as an opportunity to spot some missional mistakes that we see. I see some poor form sometimes. And this is a really good passage to help kind of bring some light to that. So before we do that, before we jump in, let's pray just for a second. I feel like I need help in this text. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. And I thank you that as we look at this passage, let it lead us as missionaries. Because Father, you are the proto-missionary. The first of all. The one that, that cuts the rest of the mold for all of us. So let this word, Father, penetrate our hearts. And where our hearts are resistant, show us. Lord, because your word is truth, as Jesus says. Your word is truth. I don't care what the culture says. Your word is truth. I don't care what my heart says. Your word is truth. So let it lead us today. In your name we pray, amen. This is verse 1 in chapter 13. Read along with me or it'll be up on the screen. It says, Now there were in Antioch, or in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, let's pause there just for a minute because there's a great missional point here. Good mission, good mission is diverse and not monochromatic. It's not of singular color or singular flavor, but it is very diverse. Here you have some very, very different guys serving together, right? If you were to jam a camera into their midst, you'd have a reality show very quickly. In the past 20 years, I've been in staff meetings that look a lot like this. I've been in some community groups that look a lot like this. And it can be hard to get the ball down the field when there's this much diversity. 
We have Barnabas in here, right, who's kind of the Ned Flanders of the group. A few weeks ago, I referred to him as the, the astronaut philanthropist with his perfect teeth and his perfect everything, and we never really see him doing anything wrong in the New Testament. He kind of sticks out. He's also from Cyprus, so he's not from the mainland, okay? He's from an island right off the coast. And then we have Simeon and Lucius, who are both from North Africa, right? Not only that, Simeon is black, right? So now you have ethnic diversity, you have racial diversity, now you have also economic diversity because you have Manaean in there. Now Manaean's got to be at least one generation older than everybody else because it says that he is lifelong friends with Herod the Tetrarch. That is Herod Antipas or the same Herod that murdered John the Baptist, right? Which is one generation further on. So we see an older guy with some connections and then you throw in Saul who's just kind of Got a sketchy past and just as different all the way around. It's a very different group. What I love about this, before it even starts, is that the gospel doesn't just collect us in great diversity. It sends us in great diversity. We minister and serve in great diversity. I think I see some poor missional form in this sometimes whenever the wind becomes just making a room like this feel diverse. We start high-fiving each other, right? Because we have black in here, we have white, we have Asian, we have those who are wealthy, we have those who are poor, we have those who are homeless, we have those who have big homes, and we high-five ourselves and we say, we've done it, we've done it. But this isn't the win, folks. This room isn't the win. I think they're pointing out the way is whenever we can walk alongside each other, shoulder to shoulder, on mission, reaching each other and reaching the world. That's the win. You know, I have friends that pastor ethnically and economically diverse churches in the deep south. We're more Appalachian south up here, but I'm talking Raleigh, Durham, Savannah, and these are much, much more diverse just from an eye shot than what we would have here today, okay? And one thing they say, they say, it's actually, look, it's not that difficult to get a crowd like this to look diverse. They said, but what happens is, is as soon as the bell rings and the gap, everybody goes to their own pockets, Everybody scrams to their own little niche. So it's not really community, it's more affinity. Diversity has died as soon as the service has ended. But the gospel came from much more than that, didn't it? I mean, the gospel built something stronger than just attendance that was diverse, but the church that would be diverse. We already have attendance that's diverse. Go to the DMV. Go to Taco Bell. Go to the movies. We already have places where we sit across from each other and we don't look the same. But it doesn't mean we're doing life with each other. It doesn't mean that at all. But here we see a mosaic of people who normally would probably be a bit uncomfortable with each other. But they're anchored around something different than a tax bracket and a skin color, aren't they? They're anchored around a king who has rescued them. And that's making all the difference. I think I am done high-fiving other Christians who just think it's pretty cool to just know a black person or a homeless person or one with a sketchy past or one who struggles with same-sex attraction. I think we've done this thing where it's become Christian hip to just kind of know somebody and have that box checked. Well, I know a homeless guy. Check that box. I've got a black friend, friend meaning he's in my contact list. Check that box, right? I know someone who who struggles with same-sex attraction. Check that box. I have someone who, I know, I know someone who's, who's happily gay. Check that box. But we don't really know them, do we? Do we really know them? Are we satisfied with just checking the box, especially in the church? 
Or are you walking alongside? Do they know you? Do you know them? Do you intimately have knowledge of their weaknesses and them you? I think this is a little bit closer to what this passage is pointing out. I will tell you, the challenge that we will face, not just at Legacy Church, but the challenge that we'll end up facing in Knoxville and probably the church at large is not going to be how diverse we can make this. It's going to be how diverse can we make our living rooms. That's going to be where the challenge lives and dies right there. What do we look like in closer proximity? Forget this. Forget this for a minute. It's really not hard. As we said, it's not hard to make this diverse. We can do that. And it will happen over time, but that's not the win. If we have people in our contact list that don't look like us, but they're not really in our contact list, we're not contacting them, well, then, friends, that's just goofy. This is goofy after a while, isn't it? i got to move on. <laughs> Verse 2, by the way, it won't take me that long to exegete every verse in here, so calm down. I know what you're thinking. You're looking at your clocks. Trust me. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Good missional point right here for us, right here. Good mission is spirit-filled, and good mission is spirit-administrated. Good mission is spirit-filled. Who sent them? The Holy Spirit sent them, it says in verse 4. Folks, this is the way to go. I mean, this is just the way to go when it comes to being a missionary. It's the best way to do it. We always have to remind ourselves of this because it's so easy for us to rely on our own strength, right? And our own brilliance and our cute mission statement and our vision statement and all of our well-written plans, And we rarely, rarely just cut the day open and beg the Holy Spirit to really change our day. And because we do that, it's hard for us to really get around and connect to those that look very different for it. In fact, it sounds a little bit like this. That person has too many tattoos, too many piercings, too many missing teeth, too many doctorates on their wall. They live on this side of town, that side of town. I can't resonate with them. I don't have anything in common with them. I don't know how to relate to them. I'm going to move on. We start avoiding people. It gets difficult. And we forget that the Holy Spirit is actually the one moving on hearts. The Holy Spirit's doing it for us. You don't have to. And the Holy Spirit actually loves this city more than we do. He knows who he's chiseling into, who he's molding, who he's shifting. All we have to do is just ask him. Some of you, as the news has been coming out, especially the last few days, are wondering... What do I do when I bump into someone who's happily gay? How do I talk to them? How do I show them the love of God without making them feel like I'm removing their dignity? How do I speak to them about sin and salvage a relationship? How do I do these things? Can I just be honest? You can do a lot of research, and you should. It's good to be informed. But, man, you really, the Holy Spirit is what really is doing the work right there. You have to know that. We're just not that brilliant. The Holy Spirit is the one that is moving and twisting hearts and helping and serving us. And I think when it comes to being on mission, full of the Holy Spirit, the problem isn't really understanding and hearing the Lord correctly. It's actually asking and waiting upon the Lord. I don't think we do that very well. I know I don't. I have to ask myself, just as I'm asking you, I I have to approach myself as I'm approaching you right now. Do you invite the Holy Spirit to radically shift your day, take you to places you're not comfortable, bump you into people that you're not comfortable with, change your day 
I mean, man, when I start a day, it's got, it's got guardrails and parameters. I don't have a lot of shifting around. There's not a lot of movement to be had. I can see it ruining my day. But the days where I wake up and I say, Lord, this is your day, there's going to be places and people that bring me discomfort, yet you will be leading me there. Help me see that. Who are you working on? The Holy Spirit knows who he's working on. Just ask him. He'll lead you. He'll lead you. Got to move on. Verse 5. Verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they, the third time it says that, had John to assist them. So now we see John Mark brought into the discussion, and it shows how plural everything has become. Good mission, good mission, it occurs in groups, not just individually. It, it occurs in mass. Good mission does. Here we have Saul, we have Barnabas, or we have John Mark, and they're all contributing. They're all investing and pushing the load. It's not, it's not the, the Saul show where Barnabas kind of does a little bit of an opening act and Mark is off getting some coffee for them or anything. They're all pushing the plow. They're all leveraging the gospel that has changed their life. And this is what makes sense. Mission in plurality makes so much more sense for two key reasons, and I'm only really going to talk about one. But one reason is because the world sees a depiction of what we're telling them. This is what it looks like to be very different from the person next to me, but to be in relationship and community with this person as we talk to you or as we get to know you and your family. Because we're very different from God, yet he brings us into community with him. Oh, and we'll fight too, and you'll see us fight, but we'll reconcile which is also a depiction of the gospel because we throw rocks at God and declare war on him and he reconciles with us of his own cost and our benefit. We could preach about it all day long. Plurality brings it out for everyone to see. But the second reason, the second reason is because if we're honest, some voices have deeper gravity and weight than others. And you know this to be true for your own life. You could have three people up here saying the exact same thing, but one of them is going to penetrate, right? One of them is going to have words that just carry and dig and leave a mark. We actually see Paul talking about this in Corinth. He says, you guys, it's always about I am of Paulo and I am of Apollos and I am this camp and I'm a Mark Driscoll guy and I'm a Nine Marks guy and I'm a Tim Keller guy. And we all do the same thing today. You don't have 5,000 people that you podcast. You have like one or two that make sense. You don't buy everybody in the world. You don't buy everyone's book. You've got one or two favorites. I think when it comes to mission, this is very helpful when we are in plurality because tell me if I'm wrong, there's probably people that are very far from Jesus that you're walking with and talking to right now that you feel like they're not really picking up what you're putting down. They hear you, but they're not really hearing you. And you know that they'd probably hear someone else in this room with more gravity. Probably the most missional thing you can do is an introduction. (laughs) It's to introduce your friend to a new friend. Why? Because they're going to say something different than you in a different way than you've been able to say it. I've seen this work to great effect, great fruit from this, where I've introduced people that I was the primary on the relationship and it was the secondary or the tertiary relationship that actually showed them what Jesus really looked like. It's, it's almost unstoppable. How do you stop that? It's beautiful mission. Let's jump into verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, not like the top hat and rabbit magician, but more like demonic magician, okay? A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
Good mission, we'll stop there. Good mission, it's contextual and it's informed and it makes sense to the people that you're talking to, right? Notice where they're at. They're on Cyprus. That's Barnabas' stomping grounds. He knew where all the roads went already. He probably knew the rhythms of the city, of the whole island. He probably knew the guys that the, the proconsul replaced whenever he was elected or set in. He just knew the islands. This is important. Good mission happens well whenever you understand the people and the people understand you. It's pretty simple. It's really not that complicated. It's important for us to know that context is where a lot of our missional intentionality needs to be spent. Sure, the Holy Spirit will lead you to difficult places and difficult people. People that are not in your con- they're not part of your Cyprus, right? That will happen. But come on, you're still clocking in at the same place, the same time, every day. You pull your car into the same driveway every day. We have a normal, a Cyprus. We're probably 80% of the people that we contact we see in any given week. That is the opportunity for great, great gospel intentionality. Because I love the gospel, and I feel like I I could probably proclaim it or, or at least tell anyone about it, but I couldn't go into your world and do near as good a job as you. Why? It's not my context. I have a couple contexts. That's just not one of them. I think this is good for us. I think one poor form I see when it comes to people acting Um, as a missionary and doing missional work, it's going so far outside of your rhythms to be gospel intentional that you neglect your own context. This is what I mean when I say that. This person might be intentional and very missional with the gospel, but their neighbor would never know. This is the person that never misses an opportunity to go to Haiti, Africa, or fill in the blank. They never miss an opportunity to do that, but they don't even know the names of the kids to the neighbors two doors down, right? Now, this is a failure, It's a failure. It's when you clock in and you're normal, everyday Cyprus that you make the most sense, that people know you. You have credibility. You know them. You could skip to the punch. I think a reason people do this is because there's two. I think one is because we see mission as a program, and therefore it's easy for us to stick it in Google Calendar, right? I am on mission on these days in some faraway place, right? But it's not there every day. And then I think another reason that people fail at this is simply because they're so ashamed of their walk with Jesus that they can stay anonymous overseas, but they don't want to be outed when they're here. And I know that stings for some of us in here, but that's got to be close to the truth for most of us. Isn't it easy? You go to Cuba or wherever. Gosh, you go to Houston and preach the gospel, and it's amazing how fluent you are and how carefree you are, right? And then you come home, and it's... (laughs) It's like a muzzle was put on. Why? Well, they don't know about me. They don't know about my life. There is a little bit of a shame, a fear of how they'll see you that comes into it. I think another poor form I see in mission is whenever we don't do the homework of a missionary and look at the context and we treat all contexts the same. And that's just sloppy. Ignoring context is ignoring a person. If you ignore what makes them up and their history and their culture, if you ignore that, you're ignoring them. You have to do the work. What makes them tick? Isn't this what we see Jesus doing with the woman at the well? He didn't ignore her context. He didn't treat her the same as he did um, Nicodemus a chapter earlier, right? Here they have two chapters in John, John 3, John 4, right next to each other. You don't see Jesus handling handling himself the same exact way. You see a difference in how he treads that ground. 
Listen, if you want to do CrossFit for Jesus, you want to be CrossFitters for Jesus, but you hate CrossFit, do it, but you better learn what makes those people tick because they're crazy and they have their own context, right? Running across parking lots, throwing rocks and stuff like that, slamming things. Learn it. What makes them tick? They're different from you. Don't be sloppy. You know, the biggest places I've ever found fruit in my ministry all over my life is on the college campus, in the gym, and in the bar. Easy context for me to slip in. I don't feel like I need to do a whole lot of homework to just figure out what makes that guy tick, what makes her tick. I don't have to do that. But if I was going to do doctors for Jesus, surgeons for Jesus, I'd have to do some homework in order to be honorable to that. What makes this family tick? What's a good day look like for a surgeon? What's a bad day feel like? What kind of strain does their marriage come under? What are the temptations that this guy or this girl struggles with? I have to know those things. We can't be sloppy with this. Let's look at verse 8. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, and now that's the last time you see the word Saul associated with him. He is Paul from here on out, so he just changed his name. Um, some scholars believe that was a nickname. Some believe it was just a secondary name given to him by his parents. All we know is it gets changed. Wouldn't it be cool if we all got to change our name at least once in our life? Chet Hayes. I could do better than Chet Hayes, but I probably wouldn't be Luke anymore. I'll tell you that. I have like a cool name or something like that. Verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's a key phrase. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able, unable to see the sun for a time. Interesting, that's what, that's what Paul himself went through, isn't it? Makes you wonder if he was praying inside that maybe he would go through the same change that Paul himself went through. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, point, point right here. Good mission, it runs into supernatural obstacles. (laughs) Here you have Paul trying to lay straight paths, and then this guy, Bar-Jesus or Elamus, comes and he makes them crooked. You've had this happen to you, haven't you? Haven't you had a moment with someone where it just felt like everything was finally coming in line? Months, maybe years working with someone that's far from Jesus, hoping, praying that they would ask the right questions. You start dropping little seeds and watering them, and then it it works. They're saying the right things. They're asking the right questions, and you're amazed at how fluent you are, and it's like the Holy Spirit is there, and you see a little tear come out of their eye, and they're excited, and they're nodding their head in all the right areas, and then the very next day, it's like it went back 10 steps, or maybe they're not texting you back anymore, and you wonder, what happened? What happened? The paths were so straight. How did they become crooked so fast? Well, friends, it's a supernatural thing. Salvation is a supernatural thing, right? We have God himself with the surgical right hand that is taking old hearts out and putting new hearts in, and that does not happen by our cute words and our great apologetics. It happens by God's hand. This is a supernatural thing. Don't think for one minute that the enemy is cool with this. He ain't cool with this. Don't be so naive that when you are in this city working with people around you, 
that you have free reign to say whatever you want, and it just sticks. Because the second you walk away from that person, the enemy comes in and starts lying immediately. You won't even get to your car. The enemy starts lying immediately. All those straight paths, the enemy tries to make them crooked, one after another. Friend, you've got to pray. You've got to pray. It's a supernatural event. Pray for the Holy Spirit to change that heart. Don't depend on your great conversations. You've got to pray. It's a fight for that person. Let's look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So he pulls the ripcord, and we will talk about that in a later sermon, but that's not under a good circumstance. Verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Okay. This is what he's doing before I go any further. He's drawing an arc, a narrative, and he's going to do it very fast. He's cliff-noting the Old Testament in probably under 60 seconds. He just brought up Joseph. I didn't bring him up by name, but the guy that was responsible for bringing the people of Israel into Egypt, and then all of a sudden Moses leading them out. Verse 18, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them land as an inheritance. It's Joshua. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel, main character right there, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the main character a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David, another main character, to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God had brought Israel a savior, Jesus, another main character, as he promised, as he promised. Before his coming, John, another major character, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not him. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now up until this point, everyone's agreeing with him. Total agreement. Heads are nodding. Everyone's amening. And then he drops, he drops it right here. Verse 26. Brothers, he readdresses them. Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which we, are, which we read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Okay, pause. Good mission. Good mission will connect and appropriate the gospel well to people's lives. Because that's what Paul's doing right here. Paul's doing a very good job of it. 
of taking the grace of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and connecting it to their normal. See, these listeners, they had a normal, super connected to their past and their history. It's a very big deal to the Jewish culture to be so connected. And what does he do? He starts back at Joshua. And then he goes on to Moses, or Joseph first, then Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul, David, John the Baptist, and then Jesus. Paul is connecting God's very real and relevant story to their life. He's saying this was promised. This was prophesied. We see this building. We see it unfolding. We see it rolling towards. We see it crescendoing in the person of Jesus, starting way back from where you guys have no problem all the way to right here where you have a serious problem. It's all connected, and the good news of the gospel is connected to you. It's connected to us. Listen, he didn't make the gospel relevant. He just showed how relevant it already was. We don't have to make the gospel relevant. We just reveal its relevancy. We do the same exact thing today. The gospel is connected to us. It's a very real thing, connected to our real everyday life. We're not separate from God's overarching narrative. We're handcrafted and built right into the middle of it. It's important for us to know that. It's important for us to connect it to other people. I think one area where I see this done poorly, some poor form I see in mission, is where we end up telling people true things without connecting it to their life. We spout truisms, but we don't do the good work, the evangelical work of showing them how relevant it is to them. And then what we do is we end up sounding like that dude on the corner of Union and Gay on Friday nights who just shouts and hollers from the book of Jeremiah. Is what he's saying true? Most likely, yeah. I don't know what he's reading. It doesn't all sound like Jeremiah, but I know I hear a lot of old prophet in there. Sure, a lot of it is true. Is it relevant? Yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it's really reaching a lot of people. Don't just, don't just tell people that Jesus died for their sins. I think they've heard that. I think they've heard it. I think they know that. I'm not saying don't tell them that. I'm saying don't just tell them that. Show them how relevant it is to their very real, normal life. Connect the dots. Help them. Lead them. I'm not saying don't tell the good news. I'm saying don't be sloppy and lazy with the good news. Sure, people will become Christians just by hearing the word of God. That will happen. Faith comes by hearing. You could do a hack job of it and people will most likely get saved. But do we see Jesus doing a hack job of it? Do we see Paul doing a hack job of it? He's not showing that he's doing that here. He's going through a lot of trouble right here to connect it to their real life situation. Jesus did it at the well. He did it with Nicodemus. You know, we had a class not too long ago that Kevin taught, and this is my plug for the next time he does it. He teaches how to connect, within the scope of evangelism, how to connect people to the overarching story of God. It's a fantastic class. Next time he teaches it, it should be a really good reason you're not in it. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna get in it. It was a good class. It's a good class. Let's look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalms. Now he's in the Psalms. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And that came from a prophet. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, back to the Psalms. 
You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He's digging that out of history. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And, verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Now he's talking about personal experience. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets, back to the prophets, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Okay, here it is. Good mission. Good mission has a clear and informed voice. Clear and informed. I mean, this gospel proclamation that Paul does so well has a little bit of personal experience in there, has some historical narrative. He digs some poetry out. He goes over to the prophets. He's crisscrossing all over things that God has already said, all to draw one singular conclusion, and that is this. He distills it all down. God in Jesus came to mankind to live perfectly for us as promised to the right people at the right place in the right time to draw favor upon us. Favor. It's the good news. He did this so well. I think one of the things I see done poorly in the missional world is kind of ditching a lot of what God has already said and relying too much on personal experience. And I don't think we always mean to do this, by the way. I just think it's a problem we have. Well, you'll bump into someone or I'll hear someone tell a guy or a girl that's very far from Jesus about what salvation is. What is the gospel? What is salvation? And all they can say is, is hey, I used to be a, an addict or a pervert or I used to have some pervasive problem and now I'm not because Jesus fixed me. It's the gospel. You should get saved like me. That's just personal experience and that's good and it needs to be ready to be told. But that's, listen, that's not really the gospel. That's, that's a, an effect of the gospel. And I think sometimes we just get I guess lazy? Do we have a couple passages? Can you have them read it to you? Can you read it to them? Can you show them in the Word of God where it describes like Paul is doing right here? Be informed. Be clear. Listen, a missionary who can't walk someone through a simple progression to help them see their sin, to help them see Jesus, to help them see the cross, empty tomb, it's not a very helpful missionary when you get down to it. It's just not helpful. Always be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. Have some good personal experience. Have a couple passages that are always rattling around. I don't know that I'm so fixated on you having the King James memorized, but have some passages that you're just kind of glued to. The passages that explain it the easiest for you, that you'll be able to tell someone else. Be able to do it in 30 seconds. Be able to do it in 30 minutes. But be clear, be informed, and be ready. That's what we see right here. Don't just tell them that you're happier now that Jesus visited you and that's all there is to it. That's just kind of goofy. It's not going to help anyone. Verse 43. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay. Good mission. Good mission. It runs into emotional obstacles, relational obstacles. I mean, here you have Paul and his crew. They've already been abandoned once. I mean, John Mark is gone. And now they take shots here. Here's the translation for you and me, missionary. We will take shots. We will be rejected. We will find abandonment. We will take friendly fire. And I'm sure we will all act shocked whenever it happens. Even though we know it's going to happen. I still act shocked. Gosh, I can't believe that happened. And from that person, you will be unliked. You will be unfriended. You won't get texted back. That will happen. This will happen. Jesus saw this and he told us that it would happen. He saw abandonment. He saw rejection. We know the story. And then he says the very same thing is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. Listen, I think a poor missional, I guess, action that I see when it comes to this, this one small truth is, I think there's far too many missionaries trying to make everybody happy with the word. I think we try to make way too many happy with a word that's in itself divisive. We're preaching a gospel that is either melting hearts or hardening hearts. We're preaching a message that's drawing a wedge between those who refuse to worship themselves and those who are lost in worshiping themselves. How can you make everyone happy? How can that happen? It can't. The very thing that we've been called to give just by virtue of the message itself is going to make us unpopular. Listen, do you think the church is unpopular today? (laughs) You haven't seen anything yet. We're not handing out candy. We're not handing out iPhones. We're not some person that's got no enemies like Bono or Oprah or Santa Claus. I mean, we are giving a very message that's drawing fire. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a bad job or you're too forward or you're too hard. It might just mean you're telling the truth. It might mean that you're being a pretty good, decent missionary. The goal is not to make everybody happy. I've been seeing the hashtag everywhere, love wins. Love wins. Love won. Love was expressed on a cross. That's the definition of love. Let me just make it simple. That is the definition for love. It's a good message. It's a good message for us to bring. Love won. Of course love wins. Jesus came to earth. We see that. Might not mean what they mean, though. And because of that, you will draw fire. You will. You will be made to feel like you're hateful. You will be made to feel like you're a racist of some kind. Like your message has zero tolerance for anyone and that you don't even love love. You don't even believe in love. Jesus knew this was coming. He said this was going to come. Don't panic. Verse 48, this is the last part of the passage. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, of course, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, good mission. Go ahead and stand with me. Good mission, our last point, 
It's going to give you mixed results, but it will bring joy. Some will listen to what you say, and they will be excited, and they will believe. Some will listen to what you say, and they will nod their head, but be indifferent. Some will listen to what you say, and they will be total donkeys about the whole thing. You're going to get mixed results. Try it this afternoon. You'll get mixed results, but joy is there. Why? Why is joy there? Why is there joy in mission? Because we're a part of God's mission, and there's joy to be found in that. As God was sent into mankind, so we are sent, friends. We're taking part in the gospel call over this world. There's joy in that. It's deep joy. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. I thank you not that just you have called us to be missionaries, but that you were the first missionary. And you don't leave it to be a big mystery to us on how to do this. You just showed us Jesus. And everywhere where we see Jesus, we know what we are supposed to look like. A full dependence on the Holy Spirit. One who weathers damage relationally and emotionally. One who sees obstacles supernaturally. One who goes out in plurality. We see these things. We see great diversity. We say great perspective. We say informed. We, we see all of these things. And we're able to just very simply gather what we are to look like as missionaries. Or help us not to fall into the trap to just think of that word, us being sent, as something lost from yesteryear. It does not just mean digging wells in a foreign country. It means digging out relationships with the person next door. Help us burn that in that every single day we are missionaries. Every single day we have gospel intentionality waiting for us. Every single day, Lord, we could wait upon your spirit to show us, to engage us, to empower us. Every single day. You are so good that you have given us even something to talk about. The only reason we have a story to tell is because one has changed our lives, Lord. Thank you. We worship you. We thank you. You are so good to us. You're so kind to us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.